series called Messy Church, and we're going through First and Second Corinthians. But we're going to actually wrap up this series next week, and, and really just kind of finish First Corinthians. We'll say Second Corinthians by the spring sometime, but we're going to spend two weeks right now, this week and next week, on First Corinthians chapter thirteen. And it's important that I tell you that today because you're not going to see any of First Corinthians thirteen today. Actually, we're just going to lay the foundation for where we're headed next Sunday, which might feel a little, you know, like a big switch, which means you just have to come back next Sunday, okay? It's a, it's a powerful chapter. It's, it's an important chapter. It even has a nickname, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, we call it, you might know what we call it, the love chapter. That's right. It's one of the most famous passages of Scripture, certainly the most famous in 1 Corinthians. And so, if you want to grasp love, if you want to have these words even find their mark in your heart, then I think we've got to start with, where we're starting today, and that's how important it is. So we have some people on our prayer team, and so people on our church teams have been praying this passage of Scripture for us as a church. And it's kind of powerful that this is kind of coming together. This is what Paul says in Ephesians, and this is what he prays. He prays it for the people in Ephesus, ancient town, ancient church, and he prays it for you today, okay? He says this, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. In other words, love is the foundation. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you do it. I don't know who you do it with. But love is the foundation of everything. Every story you read in Scripture, every piece of who you believe God to be, love is the foundation of it. Everything emanates from love. All of it. If there's something that you think you know about God, but it doesn't square with that truth, then you have misunderstood something about God. Love is everything. And so it's rooted, established in love. And then Paul prays this, that you would have power. Now, what that means, this is so important, is that you and I, we can get so far on our own effort, our own understanding, our own logic. We can put pieces together, and God made us in His image. And so, so much we can get done without Him really intervening. And some of you did that for a good part of your life, whether it's through your career or through various um, ways that you have used your talents. But Paul prays at this point that we would have power to do what? And you'll see, it's very simple. That you would be able to comprehend love. In fact, here's how he says it. That you would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, and he's saying this with me, it's right in the middle, these, these words that describe how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then it continues. This is so critical, foundational to who he is. And so, for us to grasp what Paul's going to say to the Corinthian church next Sunday, that we need to start where we're going to start today. When I was in high school, probably a sophomore, junior in high school, I had a group of friends who we were part of a church, and this church that we were a part of, we were pretty connected to the, to the youth pastor and his wife, and they were involved with doing the, the children's church part of our church. Anybody grow up going to children's church? Anybody do that? It's kind of like Kids Scene for our deal. In fact, Kids Scene you know, is happening right now. Kids are being taught. It's just like that. But they're trying to make it look and feel like church for kids. And, and so me and a few of my friends, we were part of a team of people that did skits and dramas every Sunday for the kids in our church separately. And these skits and dramas, they were made up of the same characters. It was sort of a serial, you know, a series of sketches for the kids in our church. And the characters were kind of unique. They became kind of 
same way you feel about some of your, you know, sitcom people. They became sort of friends, if you will, to the kids in our church. There was a, a character named Hank. He was one of my best buddies that played him, one of my high school buddies. Hank was a 10-year-old boy, his character was. And Hank had a little sister, and her name was Zelda. And Zelda was just a wreck of a girl, you know. She was a couple years younger than Hank. And Hank and Zelda had a buddy named Clem, and there were a couple other kids. There was an adult in their life, and his name was Reverend Rufus. So I was Reverend Rufus. Okay? So I thought, Sophomore, junior high school, I played Reverend Rufus, and we all got dressed up and, and played these parts. And, and here's how it worked for the kids in our church. We we were sort of the church, and we were doing it in front of them. So they had, you know, pastors would teach, and, and then the kids would get involved in whatever shenanigans, and we would work those out in front of the kids in children's church. And they learned about the Bible by watching that happen right in front of them every week. And so Reverend Rufus had to look the part too, and so I would wear some dark pants and a you know, white shirt. And I looked kind of like a Mormon, I'm not sure why, but that's kind of what I look like. And, and, and I had these glasses that were this wide, you see them at a car or whatever, they came out to here and they sat on my nose, and I wore them the whole time. I guess those glasses make me look smart, you know, so you should get some glasses. And so, and I wore a bow tie, a bow tie that came out to here. It was a big red polka dot bow tie, and I was strapped that on with a piece of elastic. And I was their little youth pastor, but my name was Reverend Rufus. And so we would learn these scripts and practice midweek, look in front of the kids on Sunday and perform these drums. And each week, sort of this new thing would happen, and we would find resolve in the scripture and work it out with the kids. And these scripts were fun to learn. In fact, here's a little piece of clip art. From the book that we learned our scripts from, this was a long time ago. I was, you know, before the first cross hardened. And so there's a little picture of these characters as they were depicted in this script. So there's Zelda there with her with her pants. And you can see Hank right there. I know it's going to be a little dramatic. We'll explain in a minute. There's, there's, there's Hank with his hat on. This is a protective older brother. And of course, you can see the glasses and the bow tie. Who's that? Right? Who's that? Reverend Rufus, that's right, Reverend Rufus. And so we had a new couple in church last service, and they, they, I told my name was Phil, and they said, well, is it okay if we just call you Rufus? And said, whatever, that's fine. And so we painted pictures of the gospel for the kids in our church, and we did it each week. So just a little side note, I learned more from having to teach than I ever learned from having to sit while somebody was teaching. And so we have kids right now that are being taught. In fact, Donna is teaching a kid's team right now upstairs. And you, if you want to learn scripture, then put yourself in a position where you're going to have to be responsible to explain it to somebody. And it's amazing what will motivate you intrinsically. If you want to get to know people, we became best friends from doing this every week. Then find some people and serve alongside them. Serve at our church, get involved in the worship team. This is how God builds his body. And some of you need that very thing, whether it's learning or connection, are the best ways to find it. So one of the early skits that we did as we learned this new way of teaching the kids in our church was all about how to become a Christian. And so one week, this was the skit that we did in front of our kids at Washington Children's Church. As we taught in church, there was Reverend Rufus who would be up front, and these kids were all little tiny pews in front of the kids. It was like they were watching us have church. It felt like 
hey, you don't have to go to church. We just want them to have church. But then they learned, right, through osmosis. And so I explained what it meant to be a Christian to these young kids, Reverend Rufus did. And as Reverend Rufus explained this, he talked about what sin is, what it means to disobey, and what the cost of sin is, and what it means to find ourselves estranged or separated from God. And so these kids learned this for the very first time as they were listening to Reverend Rufus tell the story. And then Reverend Rufus began to explain the Old Testament way that forgiveness is obtained. Old Testament sacrificial system. And what it means to have bloodshed on your behalf. And if you've been a believer for very long, or certainly as a lifetime for some of you, then all this is familiar to you. And you can imagine the words that we use to articulate this to young kids. And so the kids walked away from that church service in the sketch, having half of the story. And Reverend Rufus told the little crew of, of kids, Clem and Hank and Zelda and a couple friends, that this is how it works in the Old Testament. Come back next week because you're sure you're wondering how Jesus fits into the picture. And so they all came back into their homes and their schools and all about their life. Well, they, of course, now with this new understanding of sin, began to think differently about their relationships and their parents and all of their life, and so they went about living their life, but Zelda, who is just a dirty, rotten sinner, um, just began to feel awful about her life in the sketch, and she began to feel separated from God with this new knowledge that she had that Reverend Rufus had imparted to her, and so as she you know, was dealing with the guilt and separation from God, she did the only thing she knew to do, Reverend Rufus had said, well, in the Old Testament, if you want to be forgiven of sin, well, blood has to be shed, and he explained, of course, how that occurred in the Old Testament. And so, well, Hank and Clem knew that Zelda was pretty racked about, you know, some things she had done, disobedience in her life, parents and school and all of that. And they knew that she was dealing with guilt. And the last thing Clem remembered is she saw Zelda leaving the house with her, with her two precious turtles. And so that's what Zelda had thought. This is the only way for me to be forgiven or be reconciled to God. And so she took the two precious turtles, took them to church, went up to the front of the very, you know, I remember this being played out in front of elementary age kids, okay? And so I'm sure they've rewritten it now. Um, after some kids brought it up in counseling, you know, that sort of thing. And there she was at the front of the little children's church area at the communion table, and she brought a knife from the kitchen and laid a turtle out on the communion table, and this was, you know, this required key dramatic timing, you know, for the, the truth that is presenting this picture of the gospel to the kids in the church. And she raised her knife, and about that time, of course, in the meantime, Clem and Hank had gotten help of Reverend Rufus to intervene. They rushed into the church just in the nick of time, and Zelda raised her knife above her poor turtle. Well, you can't really cut a turtle anyway, right? And so we stopped it, and it was a very to know Jesus, be forgiven, and be reconciled. But here's what I didn't know, and I didn't understand this at all. 15, 16-year-old in high school at that time, I was teaching, I was learning. We were presenting to the kids of our church what I would later come to understand is a theology of the atonement. And you may not know that that's what it's called, but that is exactly what it's called. 
this theology of atonement that describes really sort of the answers to the big questions when it comes to our Christian faith. I didn't understand it then, and you may not even know that today you have a theology of atonement. In fact, everybody has a theology of atonement. Maybe you don't use that word, or use that phrase, maybe that's a little handy for you, but if you hang with me, you'll see how this fits. In fact, you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to have a theology of atonement. Everybody has one. It answers questions like, how do I go forward? How do I make absolution when I know I've messed up? What do I do to repair relationships? All of this is wrapped in a theology of atonement. What happens after we die? It's all connected. And it's all through our culture as well. You'll see a variety of theologies of atonement that are expressed in almost every avenue you can imagine. Anybody watched the sitcom years ago, My Name is Earl? Anybody watch that? You remember it? It's a funny show, Lottery Winner. It's all about the theology of atonement. In fact, that theology of atonement is called karma. Karma is a theology of atonement. Maybe you watched a more recent one that kind of paints that same picture. Anybody watch The Good Place? You don't even say in church, do you? Yeah, yeah. So Good Place is in uh, fifth season. It's about to wrap up. It's about this girl that goes to heaven, finds herself in heaven, and she figured, which is The Good Place, right? Um, you can imagine what The Good Place is. And so this is how it all fits together. It's all about the theology of atonement. For us in the church, if you're a follower of Jesus, it answers questions like this. Your theology of the atonement answers questions like, why did Jesus die? Why did he die? Or maybe when you were a kid, if you grew up in the church, before you got baptized or you surrendered your life to Jesus, and you knew that you are going to go chat with a pastor maybe before this was going to occur, and your parents sat you down and said, this is what you need to understand about who Jesus is. And especially when you sit down with the pastor, he's going to ask you this question, so what is the answer? why Jesus had to die. And it goes beyond that, too, of course. Why was Jesus even born? Why did he come back from the dead? These are questions that are answered by your theology of atonement. And when we ask that question, we're really wondering this question. How are my sins forgiven? How do I make things right with God? How can I know when I get to the pearly gates, I mean, how many jokes have you heard about the pearly gates and what it means to show up and how will you gain interest in heaven? How are my sins forgiven? How do I get reconciled to God? How is my relationship with God fixed if it's broken? And for some of us, we didn't even know it was broken until somebody stood up in a church or maybe at a church camp or maybe a young life leader and told us it was broken. Every one of these questions really stems from a more simple question, and it's more universal, and it's this one. I want to go to heaven. You might want to go to heaven? Yeah, yeah me too. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. You might want to go to hell? I don't want to go to hell. Not go to hell. How does that happen? And this question is, of course, centuries old. Jesus had a conversation with the man, and he said, how do I inherit eternal life? And you've been asking this question too. In fact, church is the answer to that question. In our understanding of Scripture, it's all about the theology of the atonement. So when you grew up, 
you got answers to these questions. Somebody taught you what the answers were. And they're answers that you received, and you thought, that's how it is. I remember as a youth pastor, this was a big deal. If you grew up in a church culture or you grew up on a Christian camp, then you know this is true. Youth pastors understand this really, really well. But most church leaders think that youth pastors are in youth ministry because they just love flipping off the pole with kids. And that's for the most part true. And, and then youth pastors go off to church camp just because it's fun, and that's for the most part true as well. But of course, there's a gospel-centered component in it. And whenever I would come back as a youth pastor from church camp, our church leaders had one question to ask me about how did church camp go. They would ask me, does anybody know? How many got saved? That's right. They would always ask that. They didn't want to know you might break their leg. They didn't want to know you might die. They just want to know how many got saved. And youth pastors know this, that they justify their existence based on how many kids get saved. And so youth pastors can quickly learn that more kids will get saved if we talk about hell. Right? And so the longer I talk about hell, or the louder I talk about hell, or the hotter I make hell, the more kids get saved. It's absolutely true. How many of you were scared into heaven? Come on, put your hands up. You got scared into heaven. You You made your first decision about becoming a follower of Jesus, not because God moved you into it because you didn't want to go to hell. And of course, that's a pretty good reason to follow Jesus, isn't it? But it's not in any way the best reason to follow Jesus. This is not new. This idea has been around for a long, long time. Let me see if you know who this is. You know this guy? His name's Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a part of the Great Awakening, a revival that swept across England and the United States in the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards preached an incredibly famous sermon. I bet some of you know the title. Anybody know the title? Yeah, I'm hearing a few people whispering. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards preached this at a church in Massachusetts on July 8, 1741. And when he preached this sermon, he couldn't even finish it. He was interrupted by the wails and the cries of the people, so distraught by the pictures that he painted of God. A lot of people got saved that day. In fact, here's some words that he preached. He said this, Yes, it's true. God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on the earth and with many that are now in this congregation. So some of you should pray. What we said just a minute. Okay. With many who are in this congregation who may be at ease than he is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. And then he goes on to say this. The wrath of God burns against them, and some of you, and their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared, the fire is made ready, the furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow, and the glittering sword is held over them, and the pit hath opened its mouth under them. And at that moment, many people wail aloud. The picture that so disturbed the congregation the most is this picture of God that Jonathan Edwards painted. 
of God with his bony fingers holding a piece of thread. At the bottom of that thread is you, barely hanging on, hanging on by the thread above the flames of hell. The sword that Edwards references is in God's other hand, and all he has to do, and he seems, according to Calvin Edwards, very anxious to do, is cut that thread so that you fall where you justly belong into the flames of hell. This picture of God is key, and it's important. And I want you to grasp it. I want you to see it as Edwards presented it. And I want you to understand it. Because our understanding of atonement was shaped by Jonathan Edwards. Our understanding of atonement was shaped by a man that came before him named John Calvin. It's shaped by a man who's one of our spiritual ancestors, Martin Luther. In fact, if you grew up in Western civilization at all, and if you grew up after the Reformation, then your understanding of atonement is deeply shaped by all of them. And there's a name for their understanding of atonement. And so the name of that theory of atonement is this. Penal substitution. Say it with me. Penal substitution. Now, you don't use the word penal, but you know what it means. Our prison system is often called a penal system. It's all about punitive punishment and discipline and incarceration and being separated and estranged. Like when we did our little stand in front of our kids in church church that day, my understanding was I'm just explaining things how they are. When I came to later learn as I studied theology and got my degree and learned all kinds of things about God, is that there are a full five, six, seven theories of atonement that answered the questions that I put on the screen earlier. Why did Jesus have to die? How do we get reconciled to God? All of them answer those questions in very different ways. I had no idea that this was the case. Different theories of atonement. And when you begin to read some of these theories of atonement, well, I can give you some volumes if you're interested, but the, of course these theologians descend into a level of minutia that you would just rack your head and smack it against the wall and say, I can't believe people even discuss this. This is the most irrelevant stuff I've ever read or seen. And it sure does seem like, I mean, these are people who would argue, these theologians, how many angels can you fit on the head of a pen and things like that that make no bearing at all. Theories of atonement. I just know Jesus loves me. That's all I know. And that seems wonderful and true. And of course, it's naive. Because if you learned about Jesus in a church, then you learned the theory of atonement. Well, they didn't call it that. But they answered the key questions that you struggle with based on one of those theories. Because these theories were developed by men patriarchy and power, sacred men who had access to the sacred words, who then began to present their theory of atonement in terms of, well, that's just how it is. And so if you grew up in a church that understands this theory of atonement in, in the Western world, it was probably this one or a first cousin to it, and it could be that the God that you desperately want to know feels like he's an arm length away. It could be 
felt stuck in your relationship with God because you feel estranged from an angry God. It could be because you have believed for most of your life that you are, in fact, a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And maybe God's chief emotion towards disobedience and failure and falling short of sin is an emotional human anger that fuels most understanding of atonement. It could be that you just keep showing up because you know you should be here. But at times you feel like you aren't getting anywhere in your relationship with God. And that could be because you misunderstand why God would bring you here. Let me share a quote with you. Let me see if this resonates with you. This is written by a theologian, the author, James Bryan Smith. When I read this, it stopped me in my tracks. Let me see if this hits you between the eyes like it did me. I lived my early Christian life with the belief that God really did not like me. God tolerated me, I thought, in the hopes of improving me. Anybody resonate with that? Let me see your hands if you resonate with that. When I read this as an adult, Come on, I, I've been around the block. I was, I was Reverend Rufus for Ben the Saints when I was a kid. I mean, most kids were out, I don't know, doing other teenager things. I was playing church in church. I, I know God. I've been around church. I understand. I knew theology before I even knew the word theology. And yet, when I read these words, they described me. I bet they described some of you. One day, he says, second paragraph, I just might get myself together, quit sinning, and start behaving like Jesus. Then I was certain that God would approve of me. Just describe you. How you feel. What you experience. Maybe that you understand God exactly the way James Bryan Smith did as well. Let me get very practical with you as we talk point towards next week. If this resonates with you at all, it's because you struggle in this way, okay? See if you can fill in the blank here. God would love me if... What would you put in the blank? God would love me if... Let me make it even a little deeper for you. God would love me more if... What would you put in the blank? God would love me if... If I was a better person, if I wasn't so sinful, if I didn't have the same awful habit that keeps showing up time and time again, God would love me if I wasn't divorced, if I wasn't gay. God would love me if. What would be in the blank for you? God would love me if. I wasn't such a selfish jerk behind the wheel of my car. What is it? If you could fill in that blank, then you'd have an understanding of God that needs to be shifted and changed. Maybe you need to go through a whole different kind of conversion than you did when you first surrendered your life to Jesus. Very connected to this question is another statement, another fill-in-the-blank statement. It's, it's this statement. And some of you are on this side of the deals. It's the same issue. It's just another facet. If God loved me, then fill in the blank. 
If God loved me, he would have provided for me. I would have got a job. And now we're waiting. Again, we're waiting. If God loved me, I wouldn't have gotten a diagnosis I got. I mean, I've lived my entire life all for God. And this is what he gives me. You can feel it underneath all of the cancer. You sense what's happening underneath? If God loved me, then I wouldn't be in this financial mess. If God loved me, my husband would fill in that blank. If God loved me, my kids wouldn't look like, act like me. They are who they are. If God loved me, and then as you feel your blanks begin to fill in with a sense of what God has or has not done for you, then you see that the same thing runs through both of these statements and all the blanks. It's anger. Anger is central to both. It's hard to say which comes first. Do you perceive God was the angry God holding you above the pit of hell? Or that he didn't do something that you feel like you should have and you've reacted to that? I mean, you know, if you're walking down the street and somebody just walks up to you and throws a punch at your face, that natural reaction would be to punch him back. Which comes first? With you and God. Anger is at the center of all of it. And anger is what's in the middle of most of our understanding of atonement. And we believe mistakenly that that's the very nature and character of God. And it's not. We can't even touch 1 Corinthians 13. Before we get our heads around this, at least a little. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't even believable if you think anger is at the center of things. Let me introduce you to one more old guy, okay? Here's another old guy. You might know who that is. If you know who it is, say it loud enough for us all to hear. Anybody know? We have one person in first service who's Cindy V. And so you might. Yes, it's connected to the Evangelical Covenant. This is a gentleman named P.P. Waldenstern. His name is Paul Peter Waldenstern. He had heard about Jonathan Edwards' sermon, read it. He was a theologian in Sweden, late 1700s, 1800s. As he experienced most theories of atonement, he began to watch what was occurring in the Christian world. He was so troubled by it. This is what he said. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that represents who God is. In fact, Waldenstrom believed that the apostle John was right, that, that God is love. And so he began to search the scriptures in such a way that we just begin to ask this question, what does it mean that God loves us and Jesus died for us? And so Waldenstrom began to write some of these thoughts down about the atonement, about what it means to know who Jesus is and God's love for us. When I began my relationship with the Covenant Church after I connected with people on the search committee about 15, 16 months ago. I never heard of the Evangelical Covenant Church before. And so I began to do my own research, and immediately I was introduced to 
all Peter Walton stories. And I thought, well, I'm going to find out who this guy is and what he taught and what he thinks. And I stumbled on very quickly this document that was in your seats when you came in. Some of it we have another stack out here as well. And this document was written by uh, another very Swedish individual, Soderstrom. I love the Covenant Church. You can tell he has roots in history in the Covenant Church. We went to the annual meeting for the Evangelical Covenant. I, I told Donna, I've never seen so many Swedes in all my life. There are Swedish people everywhere. Beautiful. It's amazing. And so this history of the Covenant Church, this author writes about Waldstrom's theory of the atonement. And so I'm in my house in our office, and she's downloaded this in PDF and printed it off and began to read it. Now, I grew up deeply scripted in penal substitution atonement, and most of you have as well, unless you're new to faith or grew up in a very different church than most of our churches across the country in Western civilization. As I begin to read his words about the atonement and his vast and deep understanding of Scripture, this was my thought. I don't know if he's right, but I hope he is. I hope he is. And on that day, God began to dismantle an understanding of a very angry God that I have carried with me for decades. I wonder if you need that for your sake, man. I wonder if you need a different understanding of God's love for you. I wonder if you've carried an expectation that God has of you that isn't scriptural and it isn't even true. Some of you have relationships here on earth with people that are angry with you. Maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your dad, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a kid. Let me ask you this. What do you do with people, relationally speaking, when they're angry with you? What do you do? What? What else? Shut down? What else? Get angry back? What'd you say? Reject? Wow. I knew when my dad was angry with me. He was in the very high of his emotions. I knew when he went to work. I knew when he got home. I knew where he'd be for the first hour after work. I knew all kinds of things. I knew exactly how to avoid contact with him when he was angry with me. If you have felt distant from God and wondered, why it just isn't working for you, I'm going to guess, with a pretty educated guess, that it's because you have a view of God that keeps you distant from Him, avoiding Him, that you have not even begun to comprehend the depth and the height and the width of God's love. And as Paul said in Ephesians, you're going to need God's power to do that. If you have grasped something, penal substitution atonement, if that is connected to your theory of atonement, here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's incomplete. And I'm saying you need to understand another side of who God is and how he loves you. This is what the Apostle John said during the end of his life, probably from an island of exile. This is how he describes it after having lived and walked with Jesus first in the flesh and then through the Spirit for decades, an old man. So we have come to know and to believe the love 
that God has for us. God is what? God is what? God is love. I know he, I know what some of you think. If you're deeply scripted or grew up in that sort of different view of things, I know you're, you're thinking, yeah, but, yeah, but you can't add that. You can't, I mean, you can, and you'll be stuck. You'll be stuck. Everything God is emanates from love. The judgment that you've experienced is nothing like the judgment you'll experience from God. God's judgment emanates from love. The expectation that you've experienced, you've not experienced anything like God's expectation. It emanates from love. Always. God can't do anything but love. It would be so contrary to his nature, he would cease to be God. So yes, God is love. And then he says this, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Does that sound like a warning to you? Does that sound like hiding to you? Does that sound like distance or arm's length to you? I know. You want to walk with God. He created you. He made you in His image. And He wants to walk with you every day. But some of you have an image of God that keeps Him so distant from you that He has no part in your daily life. God wants something different. And so, would you be willing to set aside something that you always thought you knew or something that you could learn that could transform your understanding of who God is? His nature and his character. And not only that, but waits on the other side of it. It's a welcoming into a relationship with God that some of us, even though we've been in church most of our lives, have never experienced. That's what God has waiting for you. So Lord, we pray right now as a church, each one of us, Lord, we're grateful for men like John Calvin and Martin Luther. And yes, Lord, of course, even Jonathan Edwards. Men, they blazed the trail. They took us down a path of understanding something about your nature. But Lord, we ask that you would take us a bit further. That we would understand your nature in such a way that it would be fully complete. That we would not rest on all of the voices of the past to give us a complete understanding. But that we would return to your word and we would understand what is written here. And that we would experience your love as if for the very first time. Lord, there are some people right here, right now, in this place that resonate with Smith's words from earlier. And we're not even sure you like us. Or that even your relationship with us has a, a motive other than improving us. Lord, forgive us for falling so short in our understanding. Help us to open our hearts and our hands and ways. And so we pray this prayer together. Lord, give us an understanding of your love that transforms us from the inside out. Help us to know you in ways that we never have before. Lord, help us to dive in. Not just to learning as a knowledge, but into walking with you every day. Lord, I believe that if we understood who you are, we would never avoid you. We would draw close to you every moment. 
we have never been so loved and accepted when we are in your presence. And I pray that you carry that presence with us.